everyone, and welcome to the Southcliff Podcast. We're glad you've joined us. Now, here's Senior Pastor Dr. Carol Marr with this week's sermon. Well, it's a joy to be with you today, and we continue in a, kind of a short series we started a few weeks ago that I have entitled Vital Questions. And what we've done over the last few weeks is just kind of looked at questions that we sometimes find ourselves asking and the challenges that those questions bring to our life. And we have gone to the book of Psalms trying to find an answer to those questions. And today, I want to look at a question that actually is asked in the psalm and answered in the psalm. So if you would, turn with me to Psalm 73. Now, in this particular psalm, the question is asked and the answer is given. So we're going to look at that question that the psalmist asks and the answer that he comes to embrace as he walks through his experience in life. Now, here's the question that the psalmist is going to ask. And so I'm just going to kind of give you the question just as he offers it in the text. And the question is simply this, why do the wicked prosper? Why is it that people who do not know God, who do not love God, who don't care about God, who don't care about his word, who have no desire to live according to the principles of his word, they have nothing for God or the things of God, and it looks like they've got it made. I mean, when we begin to look at their life, they seem to have no problems, no challenges, no difficulties. They seem to be rewarded in the world that they're living in today. And then when we look at our lives, we begin to discover, well, I'm trying to live for God. I'm trying to avoid sin. I'm trying to do what God wants me to do. I'm trying to spend time in the word. I'm trying to spend time in prayer. And we struggle. And life is hard. And we begin to wonder, why is it that the people who have nothing for God have it made, and those that love God struggle. Why doesn't God bless his children and curse everybody else? I mean, it just makes sense if you want to grow the kingdom. Bless your children, curse everybody else, and everybody will get it, and they'll come around. Well, those are the questions that the psalmist asks and answers in Psalm 73. Now, Psalm 73 begins in a very interesting fashion. What he does in Psalm 73 is he gives us the conclusion he comes to at the very beginning. He doesn't wait to the end. He tells us, okay, I'm struggling with this question, and in the course of my struggling with the question, this is my conclusion and he offers the conclusion up front when he simply said that, that truly God is good to Israel and to those who are pure in heart. He said Bef before I get into the question and tell you my story and it's almost as if he says I want to I want to tell you my story. I want to tell you my testimony. I want to tell you how I arrived at this conclusion. But before I tell you how I arrived there, I want you to get a clear picture in your mind of what the conclusion is. God is good. And I want you to see that. And then I'm going to tell you how I got 
to the place where I could say that. And he offers to us then his story and the journey of his getting there in Psalm 73. So with that in mind, let's look at this psalm together and, and, uh, and then we're going to uh, discover how he came to that conclusion. What, what are the things that, that enabled him to get there that maybe could offer insight for us? He begins with verse 1, Surely God is good to Israel and to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet came close to stumbling. My steps had almost slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant, and I saw the prosperity of the wicked and there's no pain in their death, and their body is fat, and there's no trouble in other men, nor are they plagued like mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace, and, and, and garment, the garment of violence covers them, and their eyes bulge from fatness, and the imaginations of their heart run riot. They mock and wickedly speak of oppression. They speak from on high. They have set their mouth against the heavens, and their tongue parades through the earth. Therefore, his people return to this place, and waters of abundance are drunk by them. And they say, how does God know? Is, is there knowledge with the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, and always at ease they have increased in wealth. Surely in vain I've kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. <clears throat> For I've been stricken all day long and chastened every morning. And if I had said, I will speak thus, behold, I would have betrayed the generation of children. And when I pondered this, I, it was troublesome in my sight. So he's talking about the fact that the rich are prospering and, man, I am struggling. And I'm just about ready to give up and say that, it, you know, there's no sense in, in serving God if this is the way it's going to be. And, and then he said this. This is kind of what turned his heart away. He said, but then I begin to realize, well, if, but if I turn my back on God, how's that going to impact my children? How's that going to impact my grandchildren? What is, and, and then I begin to really give some thought to the seriousness of this decision and how my decision impacts others. And as a result of that, he continues to stay, to, to simply say this, I pondered that to understand in the troublesome in my sight. Until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived therein. Surely you have set them in slippery places. You have cast them down to destruction. How they are destroyed in a moment. They are utterly swept away by sudden terrors, like a dream when one awakes. Oh Lord, when aroused, you will despise their form. When my heart was embittered, I was pierced within. Then I was senseless and ignorant. I was like a beast before you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You have taken hold of my right hand with your counsel. You have guide, you, you will guide me and afterward receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And besides you, I desire nothing on earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you will perish and, will, and, and, and you have destroyed all those who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, the nearness of God is my good and I have made the Lord my refuge and I, that I may tell of all your works. Now in this psalm, 
the psalmist just gets raw. He begins to openly tell us about the struggles that he's having and the journey that brought him to the conclusion that God is good. Now, I want to tell you something. It was a long journey that got him there. It was not an easy journey for him. It was not a, a, an easy path for him to take. He says, I came to the place where my faith was so radically shaken. I was so to the last thread holding on to my faith in God. And as a result of that, I acted foolishly and I almost turned away from God. I know people who have turned away from God because of the very questions that the psalmist is struggling with. He says, as for me, in verse 2, my feet almost like came close to stumbling. My steps almost slipped. Now, why? Well, the bottom line is because he didn't understand God's dealing with him. He said, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, when I saw the success of the ungodly, they increase in wealth, they have no fear of death, even the fact that they died peaceably and painlessly without any real trouble. And at the same time, they are arrogant, they're proud, they're blasphemous, they're deceitful. And then he looked at his own life. And as he looked at his own life, he said, man, I have tried to live for God. I've tried to do what's right. I've tried to avoid sin. I've tried to, to, to get in the word. I've tried to pray. I've tried to, to, to do the right thing. I've, I've given. I've done all this. And then he says in verse 14, but I have been stricken all day long, chastened every morning. Now, we're not really sure what the struggles were that the psalmist was having. It might have been economically. It might have been that he was struggling financially. Maybe he was struggling with his health. Maybe he had health issues that, that were a burden to him, that made him look at others who didn't love God and say, well, man, they don't even hurt, and they die without any pain, and here I am suffering through the challenges physically. That may have been family issues. Maybe it was relationship issues that he was struggling with. Maybe he was looking around to say, well, these arrogant people who don't love God seem to have no problem with their children, and I'm struggling at every level with mine, and I'm trying to be a good parent. I'm trying to teach them right things. Here's, here's the bottom line. Here's the deal. The psalmist actually believed that God was holy and righteous and true and loving, and he honestly believed that God loved him and cared for him and would intervene in his life. But he wasn't doing it. He believed that God would answer prayer, but he wasn't. He believed that God could do anything as we sung a moment ago, but he wasn't. And when he begins to look at the way that God is working in his life and the perception that he had of the way that God was working in the lives of other people, his faith began to waver. And he even became envious of people that didn't love God. He even came to the place where he was saying to himself, what's the use? 
Am I wasting my time? I mean, we actually got up on a Sunday morning, got dressed and came to church and people that don't love God are sleeping in. They've got it made. And we struggle. He comes to the conclusion, in a sense, there's no use even trying. After all, living a godly life, look at what it's brought me. Look at those that don't live for God. Ultimately, he's ready to say it doesn't pay to serve God. So I guess the question for us today is, have you ever been there? (laughs) Have you ever asked those kind of questions? Have you honestly looked, maybe looked closely at somebody in your own family who doesn't love God? And they seem to be doing better financially than you are and you're tithing and giving and you're serving and you're trying to figure all this stuff out. Have you ever been there? Well, if you have, then maybe you need to listen to the testimony of the psalmist as he walks through that journey that you find yourself on. As he walks through this journey, the Bible tells us there's a turning point in verse 17. The turning point is that as he struggles with that, he says this, until I came into the sanctuary of God, then I perceived their end. So he says this, He said, I struggled until I went to church. I found the answer at church. It almost seems to say that some of the struggle he was having, he wasn't going to church. He got to the point where God had disappointed him. He had gotten to the point where I'm not sure that God answers prayers. He had gotten to the point where he felt like God had it in for him. Maybe it works for you and God likes you, but God just doesn't like me. He's got it in for me. And so he, he, he backs away from church and anything to do with that as he begins to struggle. And then he comes back to church. And when he came back to church, something changed. And what happened was when he came to church, he began to think differently. There was something about being in the house of God with other people that made him begin to think spiritually rather than physically. He began to speak or or think in his own mind of a big picture. He began to see the whole picture, not just a part of it. And when he saw the whole picture, there were three things that he discovered. And as he made this discovery, his whole countenance began to change. The first thing he discovers, he tells us in verse 17 and 18, is he says, I I came to church and when I began to look at the whole picture, I began to realize the fate of the wicked. I began to realize that, wait, wait, wait a minute. I'm looking at the wickedest people that are being blessed and have life by the tail and are living it up and everything is good. But, but when I came to church, I began to realize, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. There's a, there's a big picture here. There is an eternal picture that we've got to take into view. And, and, and if you look eternally and if you look at the whole picture, not just the part of it, things look differently. Things aren't always the way they seem, and that's what he discovered. 
That when I came, I recognized there was a whole picture. We have a tendency to think one way when, when we discover something very different. When I, when I was growing up, I had a friend by the name of Johnny, and, and um, Johnny's dad was a mechanic, and, and he spent a ton of time with his dad in the, in the shop, and as a result of that, was a pretty good little mechanic himself, even when we were in high school. And, and I remember his dad uh, had this old, you know, like many mechanics out in the uh, country have a bunch of old trucks and cars in the back that are, that are worthless. And he told Johnny that he could have anything back there and, and uh, he could get it running. And I remember he, he picked this old 60, it was about a 67 uh, Chevrolet pickup and it was a rust bucket. I'm telling you, you could kick anywhere on the truck and rust would just fall out from under it. And so Johnny pulled that old 67 Chevrolet pickup truck into his dad's garage and began to work on it. And I'd go over there sometimes, hand him tools, learn a little bit as we were going through that. He took that engine out and at the time he put in at the same time a 454 Chevrolet engine that was the largest engine available at that time and, uh, and the most horsepower. And he put a 454 in that old 67 67 truck and kind of beefed up the suspension a little bit, but he didn't do anything to the body. And in fact, I'd ridden with him on numerous occasions. If you get on the passenger side, there was no floor in the passenger side. You put one foot over on the, uh, where the door's at, the other foot kind of where the transmission is, and you can see the highway going underneath you, you know? I mean, it was just a piece of junk. And I asked him, well, why don't you do so? He says, no, I want it this way. And then he would take it and drive it around and he would find somebody that back in the day, you know, the, the, the real rich kids had these little Trans Ams, you know, back in the Smokey and the Bandit days. And they had these Trans Ams and they were 45 and it was just all hot and all that kind of stuff. And Johnny would kind of pull up to them and just rev his old pickup truck up. And as he revved it up, rust falls from the bottom of it. And, uh, and then they would look at him as he was crazy and say to him, well, you, you want to race? And yeah, I'm ready to race. And he would literally put money and just mop the floor with everybody that was around there. And it just really taught everybody in our community an important lesson. You know, looks are deceiving. Things aren't always as they appear. And when we begin to look at the psalmist, that's exactly what he discovered when he came to the house of the Lord. He said, you know what looks are deceiving? It looks like these guys have got it made. It looks like those who have turned their back on God are doing well. When in fact, he says, I'm not the one in a slippery place. They're the ones that are in a slippery place. And the surface that they're standing on in the end that is before them is marked by the judgment of God. And he said, when I came into the house of God, I really began to recognize that there is not a long-term, not a short-term view, but a long-term view. I want to tell you something. If you look at things short-term, you miss it. I mean, look at some of the stories in the Bible. How about the flood? Look at the flood from a short-term perspective. Noah's building this ark in the middle of dry ground. Everybody at the time is living it up, doing their own thing. Life is good. The economy is good. There are no morals. They can do whatever they want to do. And who's the crazy guy in the picture? It's Noah who's building this ark in the middle of dry ground. 
and he's preaching to them repentance and telling them that rain's going to fall from the heaven. And they're saying, that's never happened. Boy, this is the stupidest thing we've ever heard of. It's not going to flood here. I want to tell you, in the short term, Noah was the guy that looked stupid. But when we get a long-term perspective, things change. And all of a sudden, the people who seem to have life by the tail and doing well and and living it up and making the right choice, suddenly we begin to realize they didn't make the right choice at all. You remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in the Bible? Look at the difference between Abraham and Lot. Lot chose to go toward Sodom and probably sold his flocks and so he was a wealthy man, moved into the city and was living it up in Sodom and all the while Abraham was wandering around in the hills with a bunch of sheep. And when you look at the two, you would say, well, you know what? Lot made the right decision. Look at him. He is just really doing well. Man, he's in the city. He's up in city government. Everybody respects him. Everybody loves him. He's got the the big mansion on the hill. Everything's going good for Lot. But if you look at the long story, you begin to realize, wait a minute, Lot made the wrong decision. Abraham made the right decision. And so the psalmist is simply saying, when one of the house of the Lord, I realized that there's a big picture that we sometimes miss. And the end of the story is what's important. And, and the temporary pleasure that we find here in the meantime doesn't match the end. I guess maybe we need to have the insight of Moses who do you remember when he made a decision to leave Pharaoh and the court of Pharaoh and the wealth of Pharaoh and the Bible says of Moses in, in, in Hebrews and looking back at that, that rather than, than suffering, or that he chose rather to suffer the affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Because Moses began to understand there's a season, but the long term And so what did he discover when he went to the house of the Lord? He discovered, first of all, the fate of the wicked. Wait a minute, I'm not looking at this correctly. But the second thing he discovers is this. He also saw the foolishness of his own way. In verse 21 and 22, he basically says, I became like a beast, like an animal in my thinking. Now, the reason he was saying that is because he was just ultimately recognizing that that animals, though they can be smart, don't have the ability to reason. They don't think through things. And what he was saying is, as I began to look at the things around me, I wasn't thinking through things. Now, what was his thinking that made him perhaps like an animal or like a beast? And and I I think there are a couple of things. First of all, I think it was this. He, He doubted God... Because God did not act immediately. The the first problem was he thought because God didn't act immediately, God wasn't going to act at all. Now, I want to tell you something. I, I think that's a mistake that many of us make. How many times have you brought something to the Lord in prayer and you earnestly prayed that God would do that? And if it didn't happen within 24 hours, you gave up. You walked away. You quit praying. And you know what you determined? Prayer doesn't work. I tried it. I prayed. I 
told God, I asked God, I entreated with God to do that and he doesn't do it. And you made the assumption that because God doesn't act immediately, he's not going to act at all. And so you began to get in a slippery place because of your expectations of God. And that's what the psalmist did. He, he expected a trouble-free life. He felt like God had not acted immediately to fix the problem, so he's not going to act. He forgot that God's justice reigns. He had a false idea about God and a life, and, and he somehow came to believe that if you're a child of God, if you're a Christian, life should be good. We should never have any problems. We should never have any difficulties. Listen, I've discovered that most of us have a tendency to accept all the good things in life without much thought. We accept the gifts that God gives us. The gift of freedom, the gift of being born where we were, the experiences and privileges and opportunities that we have had, the pleasures that we've enjoyed in life, the joy that we have experienced, and we experience all of the gifts of God without giving much thought to it or saying much about it. But the minute one thing goes wrong, the minute one thing goes in a direction that we don't want it to, we begin to complain and we begin to grumble and we begin to doubt and we begin to pout. We take our health and our food and our clothing and our housing and our loved ones for granted and something goes wrong and we start complaining and we would say, why does God do this to me? And the psalmist said, man, that thinking's like an animal. I'm not even thinking. I'm not reasoning. I'm not, I'm not really thinking through because if I stop long enough and think, God is good. He's been good to me. I mean, this, this is wrong, but, but, but look at the other things in life. Now, the second thing I think that brings him there, one is he, he doubts God because God doesn't act immediately. He expects God to do And here's another one. He, he acts as if Christians should never have anything wrong in their life. That we should somehow be exempt from problems, that God loves us and so he should remove all the problems. But the reality is that God never promised us that we would have a life of ease. He's never promised us that there would never be any problems and difficulties in our life. And so all of a sudden, when he returned to the house of the Lord, he gains the right perspective. He gets a spiritual mindset and he remembers, wait a minute, God doesn't promise to remove all the problems. What he does promise is to come to me in the middle of the problem. And I'm looking for a way out when I should be looking for him. In the problems that you encounter in life, don't look for a way out. Look for him. And when you find him, sometimes we don't need a way out because we discover that he's all we need. His thinking was producing the problems. Now, the third thing he discovers is this, not just the way of the wicked and and the foolishness of my own thinking and what I've done. But the final thing that he discovers is this, the faithfulness of God. In verse 22 down through verse 25, 
He said, listen, this is what I've discovered. God is faithful even when you're not. You know, that needs to be said again, doesn't it? (laughs) God is faithful even when you are not. And there are three things he identifies with God's faithfulness. He said, you know what? God God kept me from falling. He, he, He saved me. He said it this way, you guide me with your counsel and you received me to glory. The word received brings with it the idea to take to glory. He said, you saved me. Proper thinking brings us to the place where we realize that God saved us. If you're a child of God today, if you've accepted Jesus as your Savior, listen, God saved you. He redeemed you. He's forgiven you of your sin and given you a new life. And we need never to get over that. That's huge. He saved me. He chose me. He he brought me to a place where I would understand that I'm a sinner separated from God. I never would have figured that out, but God led me there through his counsel. He put parents in my life who taught me. He put people in my life who taught me. He put friends in my life that shared the gospel with me. He put friends in my life that brought me to church where I could hear the gospel. I don't know your story, how you came to faith in Christ, but I know this. Through the counsel of God, he brought you to a place where you would see your need for him and where you would see his love. And when you accepted his salvation and you repented of your sin and turned to him, he gave you a place in glory. And the psalmist said, you are my salvation. You saved me. How in the world can I think that everybody else has got it made when I've been saved? I've been redeemed. I've been forgiven. I've got a new life in Christ. And and not only that, he says, not only have you saved me, but as if that's not good enough, you satisfy me. Who have I in heaven but you? (laughs) And none on earth that I desire more. You know what he realized? That God was all he needs. I wonder if you've come to that place as a believer, as a child. Have you come to the place where you've recognized God's all you need? Maybe that's the reason that you struggle if you've not come there. I think what he was saying is simply this. If if you come to the place where you understand that God is all you need, what it means is if I have God, I don't have to have answers. If I have God, then life doesn't have to make sense. Why does it appear that the wicked are struck? I, I, I don't know. And you know what? I don't have to know. I don't care. Because I've got God. I've got all I need and more. He's provided for the greatest need that I have in salvation. And he satisfies my needs in in his presence, in his person. And then finally, he said, and he strengthens me. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart. When life falls apart, I can lean on him and find in him strength and courage to move forward. And when I remember that he saved me and when I recognize that there's none like him on earth and no one loves me like he does, when I realize that in my weakest moment I'm strong because he infuses me with his power and his strength, then 
I come to an interesting and brand new conclusion. God is good. And it doesn't make any difference what everything else in life looks like. He's good. Surely he's good to the people of Israel. Our God is good. And in the final moments of the psalm, he does this. He said, because he saves and satisfies and strengthens me, I'm resolved to do three things. I want to stay as close to him as I can. (laughs) I want to stay near to him. Because it was when I wandered away that I began to question. It was when I wandered away that I began to see things in the wrong view. I'm going to stay close. I'm going to make up my mind. I'm going to stay close to you. And then I'm going to make up my mind that I'm not only going to stay close, I'm going to trust you. I'm going to trust you completely. When I don't understand, when life doesn't make sense, when things are confusing and I have questions, I'm going to make this decision. I'm going to stay close to you and I'm going to trust you. And the third thing he says I'm going to do is I'm going to tell my story. I'm going to share this truth with everybody around me because this is what I've discovered. You're asking the same questions. And unless you get an eternal perspective, you're going to drown. And your feet may slip and you fall and you walk away from your faith. And what tragedy. I'm going to tell you my story of how you can regain your confident trust in a God who's good and who loves you. And it may be that you're here today and you have asked these questions and it may be that you're here today and you've abandoned your faith. You've walked away from you. You're one of those people that decided that prayer doesn't work. And maybe today God is saying to you, you've just taken a short, we have a tendency to just look at life by the moment instead of looking at the whole picture. And God says, I want to invite you to look at the whole picture There's a whole eternity that you step into when you die. And that's what I've provided for. And today you may want to return and say, God, forgive me for a wrong perspective and restore to me that close relationship and bring me to that place where I've got you and that's all I need. I don't need answers now that I have you. Keep me close. Keep me trusting Maybe God's leading you to share your story of struggle with another person, and that's the conviction. Or it may be that you're here today and have never accepted Jesus as your Savior. And God's brought you here today to simply say this, through the counsel of his guidance, he's brought you to a place to teach you an important truth. You are a sinner separated from God, and there's nothing you can do about it. Baptism doesn't fix it. Church membership doesn't fix it. Living a good life doesn't fix it. The only answer for you is to admit you're a sinner and ask God to forgive you and to believe that God in Jesus has provided a way. He died to pay the penalty for your sin. So your sin debt's paid in Jesus. And if you receive Jesus, then you can become a child of God today and you can know the forgiveness and new life that he offers. And that's the opportunity that we give you today in these moments. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the message you've given us today. For the question that we often answer and the answer to that question. 
And I pray, God, that you will speak to us in this moment for those that have never accepted you, that today would be the day that they realize through your counsel, you brought us right here today to make this decision. And it's time to decide. This is the moment we can decide. And for others, Father, who have maybe become like the the foolish animals who who have doubted you and questioned you, maybe it's time for us to return too to that place of trust as we yield our life to you. And in this moment, I pray you would speak to us and give us opportunity to respond in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. From everyone at Southcliff Church, thank you for joining us today. If you would like more information about Southcliff Church, please go to southcliff.com to share a testimony of how God has encouraged you through this ministry, send an email to scpodcast at southcliff.com. That's scpodcast at southcliff.com. Click the Give button on our webpage to discover how this ministry is supported. Your financial gifts help accomplish the mission God has given us.